You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where we read through the Bible, talk about it, try to talk about it well, try to speak well of it. You know, so there's we'll that. S- <laughs> we'll see how well we're doing. Uh, it's been a crazy day so far. So, <laughs> Yeah, I guess, I guess this week we're going to try to speak well of the Bible and not so much about some of its characters or yeah. some of the ways it's been interpreted. So um, if you were with us last week, you know, we started David and Bathsheba which that's going to be interesting. So if you haven't listened to last week's, please go back and listen to that. Uh, it'll get you some context of context, context of where we are. Um, <laughs> maybe I can figure it out too. So um, that being said, I'm going to turn it back over to Emily and we're going to just, let's just jump into it. Okay. So uh, we did wrap up. We had gotten like basically through um, oh, verse four and that was as far as we'd gotten um now we are talking about david and bathsheba um we did talk about how david was the only active participant in this that he sent for her that he saw her that she was beautiful or good and that he took her and how that reflected back on genesis 3 genesis 6 and various other stories so you know we see the pattern and that the person who takes in all of those stories is the one who is at fault. And it's not the, what is taken. And we, we can see that very clearly in other instances where women are taken, but for some reason we try to contextualize it away or act like it was no big deal. And I really think part of the reason we have such a problem with sexual crimes within the Christian church and actually talking about them well is because we teach this particular story so badly. And I mean, that might be a little harsh, but that, that's what I'm seeing. Because even uh, we, you know, anybody who's fallen Christian circles knows that there has been the Ravi Zacharias uh, blow up that's been going on. And uh, all of the, the things surrounding that, almost immediately, what you will find in almost all the comments is, oh, well, you know, David and Bathsheba, and we still respect David. And, um, you know... <sighs> If we would have taught this story well, then we wouldn't be so quick to defend what Ravi did. And I think we need to be very careful in justifying anybody's sexual sin because David did it. We aren't supposed to be like David. We're supposed to be like Jesus. So um, I will get off my little soapbox there. But anyway. Well, if, if we didn't already have the label of a feminist podcast, I think we're going to get one now, whether or not we actually are. But... <sighs> yeah. I mean, I... I I don't want to be a feminist for the sake of being feminist or being cool or trendy or what have you, but I do want to respect what's in the text. And the text specifically says David is at fault. Right. You know, I, I get it. <laughs> I, I was just making a joke because, you know, that's the kind of stuff that gets you labeled certain things. And, and like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're not trying to, we're not trying to go back and rewrite the Bible, but we're going back and we're, we're trying to say, hey, let's correct some really bad ideas we've been taught about the Bible based on some misreadings. Exactly. And, you know, and the, and oddly enough, those, those happen to be fairly pro-woman. Uh, and Yes, you know. yes. And, and that's the really fun part about the Bible is God always si- sides with the women who are wronged. He never says, well, you know, but David's my guy. You know, David actually pays some pretty heavy consequences for what yeah. he does wrong. And if yeah, well, did... it, well and, it, and I think we should look at that, too, because God doesn't just roll his eyes and, oh, boys will mm-hmm. be boys. No, there are some serious heavy consequences, both personally and nationally for Israel. Oh, yeah. It, it impacts all of history. And that's the thing. When you have somebody who's in a leadership position, when they mess up, it has massive consequences. And this is the reason why leadership needs to be so on guard against, you know, what they're doing in their own life. They need to be surrounded by people who will hold them accountable. If you're in leadership and everybody around you is saying, hey, whatever you want, hey, that's a great idea, boss, you need to find some new people. 
And you need to find some people who maybe even rub you the wrong way because you need to have someone who cares enough about what you're doing, not about how you're feeling or what you want or makes you feel good. And so, yeah, and, and if you can't stand to have people around you that can push back on some of your ideas and give you guidance, mm-hmm. please reconsider your role in leadership. Yeah. Yeah. And so now that we've harped on people in leadership and, you know, I'm not saying that people in the leadership are, are horrible. I mean, you give up a lot and it's a hard thing to be in leadership within the church. Uh, I never want to discount absolutely. that. Yeah, so we want to be very careful in, in how we address people uh, in leadership, and, and we want to be respectful of the fact that they are giving their lives to doing something for God, and a lot of times they're doing it without a lot of payoff. And so, because um, not everybody is your, your televangelist, not everybody's going to head the big ministry. Most of the people in leadership are in leadership in small towns in small communities, um, you know, they, they are really working hard to, to do what God has called them to do. And they may never get recognized beyond just a handful of people in their lives, if that. Uh, so in this situation, though, we have the king of Israel. He is high profile. And the problem is he is acting like one of the sons of God in Genesis 6, not son, a son of the God. And that was the identity that was bestowed on him in um, 2 Samuel 7, when God says, I've adopted you. I've adopted your family. You are now my sons. And so David is failing to be who he has been called to be, who God says he is. And, you know, we're beginning to see that David is just as flawed as Saul was. And the, the reasons why we were worried about Saul was, you know, he was acting like a king of other nations. Well, now David's doing the same thing. So uh, we're going to finish up with verse uh, four. We didn't get to that last phrase. It says, and then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now for the first time uh, we hear Bathsheba's voice and she says two words in the Hebrew, Kara Anoki, I am pregnant. This is it, the two words. And we're going to find that the story really revolves around these two word phrases. Uh, there's no threats, there's no pleas, there's no embellishments. It's just, here's the facts, this is what you need to know. And the thing is, both she and David know that this condemns her as an adulteress. Now, we had asked a question in one of the previous podcasts about how much of the Torah did they have at this point in time. Evidently, they had enough to know that adultery was wrong and that there are serious consequences for it. Um, you know, she she doesn't, um, the fact that she goes to David with this information and doesn't make a big deal about it, uh, as far as, you know, not being, you know, a pregnancy not being a big deal. She, it's kind of a big deal. Yeah, uh, and, but she handles it as discreetly as possible, which still tells you that there is some reverence in her for the fact that he is king, despite what he's done for her. This is not unusual. This is totally not unusual. People have a hard time with this. They think, oh, well, see, she's still in communication with him. Uh, She's still maintaining a kind of relationship with him. When you look at, you know, just case studies of sexual abuse within the church, you'll find that a lot of times it's really hard for the victim to separate from their abuser because there is such respect for the position. Now multiply that times 100 because we're talking about the king of Israel. So it, it makes sense. And this is the reason why women can read this and they see this as being an act of violence because we, we know the signs. We, we know what happens when someone's been through this, where a lot of times men aren't looking, and I'm not, not all men, but traditionally men have not been looking for these signs when we're talking about, you know, Bible scholars from two or three centuries ago, which is where a lot of us are still getting our information from. So. Um, we also have to take into account what happens if she accuses David. Think about what happens if she goes public with this information. People aren't believing victims of sexual abuse today. Oh, they're lying. Do you know how many defenses I've already brought up Ravi? How many people I've heard who have said flat out that everyone who's accused him, people who have emails showing what he said to them, oh, well, they're lying. And so the fact that we would think that it would be any different at this day and time is ridiculous. 
to convict David of doing something wrong would require the testimony of two witnesses. Now, who could have possibly testified? Not Bathsheba. She's a woman. Her word doesn't count in Hebrew courts. David is the only one who can testify. And do you think he's going to testify against himself? The servants might be able to say they brought her to him, but they can't actually confirm what went on behind closed doors. So she has no one to plead her case. And she is staring at a death sentence because she would die for committing adultery. Everybody knows her husband's out of the country. And David is, he can get a buy with this and never have to say a word. He does not have to do anything for her defense. He can just let it happen. He can let events play out. Now, I'm not saying this makes what he did okay, but he is showing at least some modicum of compassion and concern that he did place her in a situation that was not good for her. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people think that when David has Uriah killed, that he's doing it to preserve his own well-being. That's not the case. He's doing, he is actually doing it for her. And so we want to be balanced with that because, like I said, there were no real consequences for David. All he's got to do is keep his mouth shut. So, right. yeah. Uh, so verse six, um, David uh, sent word uh, to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing and how the war was going. Now, I think you kind of have to wonder what's going through Joab and Uriah's mind at this point. I mean, they're in the middle of, a siege of Rabbah and David wants to call the best warrior, one of the best warriors home to make small talk. Mm -hmm. You know, they had to understand or at least suspect something fishy is going on. So verse eight, David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the King's house and there followed him a, a, a present from the King. So go wash your feet. That's a euphemism. You wash your feet before you go to bed. Uh, you don't get in bed with your spouse with dirty feet. We see that in Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. Uh, it's interesting that, that David says, go down. So the, what, there's a possibility David may have even slipped up here that he, hey, I know where you live. And I, I, I know that the house is below me. Or it could just be that the, that the palace is, is taller than everybody else. The other point here is he sends Uriah home with a gift. Uh, he's, he's inflating Uriah's ego. He's, you're special. You're great. And, you know, men, anybody, but a man in this, posi in this position that Uriah is in, to receive a gift from the king, an acknowledgement that he's important, that he's special, uh, this is supposed to kind of encourage him. Go home. Brag to your wife. Tell her how great the king thinks you are. So... Mm -hmm. Verse nine, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and, will, and did not go down to his home. Verse 10, and when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from, the, from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths or tents is another word there. My Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat, to drink, and be with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah's speech is this indictment against David. Uriah is refusing to do everything David has been doing. David's in his house in Jerusalem. He's eating. He's drinking. He's sleeping all day. He's sleeping with Uriah's wife. Um, David. The chosen anointed king of Israel is doing all this while Uriah the Hittite is the one saying, I won't do this. I won't participate in this because it's dishonoring to you, the king, Joab, my general, and to the God of Israel, the God that I serve. And so now we see how Uriah is actually embodying all the things that we have admired about David. Uh, he's showing concern for the ark that the armies dwell in tents. I mean, where David had just a few chapters back been upset because the ark was intense. Um, he's loyal to Joab the same way that David had been loyal to Jonathan. And he's loyal to David the same way that David had been loyal to Saul. And we're seeing an honor and concern for the Torah because 
warriors don't engage in sexual activity, even with their wives, when there's a major war going on. So Uriah has just shamed a king without even realizing that he's shamed a king. Right. And, you know, you, you kind of, I mean, Uriah is really the, the hero of the story. And because he's proven himself to be greater than David. And this was something that the rabbis could not stand. No Hittite was going to be allowed to be better than the king of Israel, particularly not David. And so they do these astounding mental and theological gymnastics to get David out of this jam and to somehow shift the blame from David onto Uriah, which I think is fascinating because you see how their concern is for the reputation of Jews where our concern as Christian society has become about men versus women. And so who you blame in this story really demonstrates your bias and who you don't like and who you really want to defend. Now, we share with the Jews that we want David to be elevated. We want him to do the right thing. So we shift our blame onto a woman. They shift theirs onto a Gentile. So um, I, I think it's really, it's very telling. It, it, it's just, it, it fascinated me. So they begin by devising a way that um, denies that David commits adultery. Mm-hmm. Now, they, they acknowledge that he slept with her, that, that, that they had sex. That, that is not a problem. But they claim she's not a married woman at this time. So, therefore, it's not adultery. Now, <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is fun. So. Adultery under... Please tell me how they get to her not being married, because the text clearly states she's married. Right? And so, basically, uh, you've got to go with a strict interpretation of what adultery is and is not in the Torah. A very strict interpretation is that adultery can only be committed by a married woman or by a man with a married woman. So therefore, if the woman involved is not married, it's not adultery. It's fornication, which is, you know, bad, but it's not horrible. Uh, adultery carries with it a death century, uh, century, death sentence. Fornication, not so much. Uh, there's lighter con- consequences for that. And so the way they, they get there is that at this time, it's believed, and, and we, there's various reasons for believing this, but that when the warriors would go off to war, that they would write their spouse a conditional certificate of divorce, that they would provide them with a, a means to, to be free to remarry should they, you know, their bodies be lost, uh, they, they get captured, they're, they're taken away for years. So now they're divorced, they're free to remarry if they want to. And so therefore... Um, Bathsheba was technically divorced when David sent for her. And the thing is, the divorce only remains in effect as long as the spouse does not go, go home. And they believe this is the reason, or they claim that this is the reason why it's so important that Uriah never goes home. And so therefore, Bathsheba is divorced throughout all of the story. I, I think that splitting hairs, uh, it's a technicality. Now, they do say that in this situation, when David's trying to invite Uriah to go home, they're actually, that David's actually providing a kindness. He, he's, he's trying to prevent Uriah from being humiliated before the rest of the men. So David is extending a grace and trying to, to cover up Uriah's shame that his wife would take advantage of being divorced to sleep with another man. And so, you know, you gotta love the reasoning here. And I can see you shaking your head. <laughs> I can yeah, feel your it, eyes it just, rolling. It, it, it just feels a little bit of, feels like a little bit of a stretch. A little coerced. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, a little bit like, um, I don't know, it, it, it feels like a lot of, it kind of feels like a lot of victim blaming. It, yeah. Oh, no, it gets better. It gets better. Because I, I, now David's kindness is met with disobedience. 
and insubordination on behalf of Uriah. So basically they say Uriah failed to obey because David said, go to your house. He, it was a direct command. He should have went and done it. Uh, he calls Joab my lord before he calls David his lord. So basically he was saying Joab was better than David and this was not to be tolerated. And that, Joab, that Uriah was actively rebuking the king, which basically Uriah was overstepping his bounds and should have kept his, um, his mouth shut. And because he had rebuked a king and because he had um, failed to show David the proper honor, this is why Uriah had to die. Now, they say that David arranges Uriah's death in such a way to also prevent him from being humiliated in death. That, you know, such a brave and, um, you know, victorious soldier, you know, this, this great warrior should not be put to death by an executioner. So David didn't take him before the Sanhedrin and have him um, put on trial and convicted. David decided to cover it up that saying, oh, he died in battle. So <laughs> you see how when we start down a rabbit trail trying to, to make excuses for the Bible, we just keep digging a deeper and deeper hole for ourselves until we just get yeah, flat out. <laughs> yeah. Conjecture on conjecture on conjecture. Yeah. And, and then you just, and then to the point where you're like, you're so far afield of what the text actually says that it's like, what are we even doing? Right, right. And we aren't honoring what the Bible has to say. So now they explain away the fact that God gets angry about all this, because we're going to find out later, God does, by saying that David was not punished for having sex with Bathsheba, but that he was punished for actually being in a place where he could see her, that he could actually lay eyes on her, that this was, this is what he got in trouble for. Now. That I don't have a problem with because David wouldn't have seen her if he would have been doing what he was supposed to be doing. But obviously he wasn't. We talked about that last week. Um, they, they claim that when David inquired after her, it was because he knew her already. And he knew that God planned on giving him a wife with that name. And that David had grown impatient waiting for God to deliver this woman to him and had began, um, had began searching for him, or began searching for her before it was the proper time. And because he was searching for his wife before the proper time, this created a situation where Uriah was tempted to sin and you shouldn't tempt somebody to sin. So this further compounds David's own sin. Again, not adultery, not murder, but the fact that he caused Uriah to fall into sin. And that this, <laughs> the punishment for this is so severe because he is king. <laughs> and so... What what I found so interesting is that they would go to such lengths to shift the blame off David that, you know, we as Christians can look at this and go, that's ridiculous. We, we can look at that and say there, obviously, Uriah is not to blame. He's, he's doing his job. He's being a great soldier. He's, you know, put it all on the line for David. But then we will turn around and go through the same hoops to blame Bathsheba. And so, like I said, this is why it's a great illustration of how our tradition and our cultural bias impacts how we read scripture. And, you know, this is, it was very, I thought it was very eye-opening for me. But, you know, we got to look at how we talk about women as a whole within the Christian culture. And when we talk about um, Genesis 3, which we know this, this is connected to, and we talk about the fall, and we hear about people who suggest that Eve had sex with a serpent, and that that was the deception, because it's got to be a woman, and it's got to be a sexual sin, so it can't just be what the Bible said it was, you know, an act of disobedience. And so we talk about the, the curse of Eve. The, the word curse is never applied to Eve. It's never even applied to Adam. It's the snake is cursed and the ground is cursed on account of Adam, but Eve is never cursed. Uh, we neglect to talk about Adam's role in the fall in Genesis 3, just like we do with David. You know, Adam was right there. This text specifically says she gave it to her husband who was with her, that they, he was there. Uh, we don't share in Eve's mourning over the death of her son. You know, she lost one son because he was killed and another son because he was the killer. And yet we do the same thing with Bathsheba. We, we don't mourn with her over the death of her son. 
she she has a son who dies too. We don't celebrate the fact that Eve later on gives um, birth to Seth, who becomes the one that the Messiah is going to descend from. Now, we see that also paralleled with Bathsheba because she's going to give birth to Solomon, who becomes the second greatest king that all of Israel will ever know. And But when we blame Eve, it becomes very easy to blame Bathsheba. And so, you know, the, the Jewish thought and theology, um, particularly um, about uh, Bathsheba, is that she's the mother of Solomon, this great king, so she can't be blamed. They have to find a way to extract her from that situation and to absolve her of any guilt. So they're fine with the idea that she's not to blame here. They're completely okay with that this was David's doing. And they're okay with even putting the blame on David in as far as its impatience. But they have to you know, take the biggest part of the guilt and shame and transfer it over to someone not part of their community. Which, you think about how that transfers to women. It's basically saying to women, when we blame Bathsheba, or blame women for being sexual um, assault victims, you're not part of our community. You don't have any standing with us. And so... Well, well, and the other thing when we do that, we're also... Cause see, and this is where I don't have a problem blaming everyone for their respective roles in this. And of course, mm -hmm. David, you know, exerted the most power and influence in all this because he is king. Because to me, you know, I look... Whenever I read the Bible, I look at it as the story of God saying, I've got a plan, I'm going to redeem no matter how bad humans mess it up, I'm going to overcome the sin. And it's, this is one more way, one more step in his process of overcoming sin and redeeming and making his goodness come out of a world that's broken. Right. And so that's, for me, that's why I don't have a problem going, yeah, you all really, everybody had a, <laughs> had a role in this. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and I think the other thing, too, is we have to remember this is another time that knowing how the writer of each particular book uh, approaches a topic. In Samuel, the only person within each narrative that's significant is the active participant. It's the one who's doing the action. So mm -hmm. for him, Bathsheba is not the active participant. The only time she takes any kind of active role is when she sends to David and says, I'm, preg I'm pregnant. And so before that, you know, David is the one who does all this. And we know that he is the focus of what's going on because we've been going through this and we know with the writer of Samuel, the only one who matters is the one who's performing the deeds. So verse 12, then David said to Uriah, Remember today also, and remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now, because this overall story is so horrific, we have this tendency to overlook the details. And it might be hard to remember that when we began, we talked about how the writer uses references back to the book of Judges. Uh, throughout Samuel, we find so many references back to Judges to heighten the suspense. But if you think back, there's another man from Bethlehem who insisted that his guests stay past the intended date of departure. Mm -hmm. And this is Judges 19, the father of the concubine. And out of all the stories in the Bible that you don't want to be connected with, this is, this is it. You, you don't want to be connected with the story of the, the Levite and the concubine because she is gang raped by the entire city. And then her body cut up and sent out to the tribes to rally them for war, which winds up in a civil war that almost destroys all of Israel. And now, what are we going to see happens here? And we also shouldn't forget that there were so many women that were, were also later raped to provide um, brides for the tribe of Benjamin. And now, we're, as we're seeing these similar points, we're going to have to ask how it plays out. Because the thing is, out of this situation with David and Bathsheba, we're going to see further rapes. More women are going to get raped because of this. And there's going to be another civil war. And if you remember back to this, the Levite and the concubine, this also connects us back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, and you also have Uriah at the door of the house 
through the night. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's it's yeah, very del- int- I hadn't I hadn't picked up on that before. That's interesting. Well, and that's the thing we we forget that that these details. Remember, anytime you get details, the Bible's trying to clue you into something that you need to be paying attention to because most of the time we don't get specific details. And by connecting us back to um, this this passage in Judges where the man from Bethlehem who was supposed to be caring and providing for his daughter and didn't care for his daughter, he didn't watch over her. And as one of David's subjects, Bathsheba is the daughter of the king. You know, he, he, she has that role that he should have been watching out for her. He should have been taking care of her. And instead, he, he does what serves him, just like the man from Bethlehem did back in Judges. And so if you notice in verse 13, this is 13a, David invited him and ate, with, ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. Now, the last time that we had somebody, well, not the last time we, well, the last time we had somebody else make someone drunk, this goes back to Genesis 19. And it was, remember, David's trying to get Uriah drunk specifically for the purpose of getting Uriah to go home and have sex with his wife. The last time we had someone getting another person drunk for the purposes of sex was Genesis 19, like I said, and this is Lot and his daughters. It's the daughters who got Lot drunk so that they could rape their father. And these are the, the result of the events at Sodom and Gomorrah. So again, Judges 19, when you get back to uh, Genesis 19, these, these stories play off each other. And the writer of Samuel picks up both of them and says, this is how bad David's behavior was. The events that happened here are just as horrifying as the events in Judges and, and in Genesis. We cannot and should not downplay the story as anything less than a horrible tragedy. And he's also showing us, the writer showing us that he has the ability to incorporate all of Israel's history together to present this horrible uh, story. And, you know, we, we have these far-reaching events. Uh, effects. I mean, obviously, Sodom and Gomorrah, we still talk about that today. You can't hardly get on the internet without finding some kind of reference to it. Um, it almost, you know, obviously, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. The, the consequences in Lot's life were not great. But, you know, here in this story, we have the immediate consequences of, you know, Uriah's going to die. David's going to have problems in his own household. Bathsheba, she's going to lose a husband. She's going to lose a child. David's house is going to be thrown into chaos, but this story, just like those previous stories, is going to shape the history of Israel. And, you know, sexual sin is never minimized in the Bible, and God never acts as if it's something to be ignored or downplayed. He always confronts it. He always says there is a consequence to it. And the stories of sexual violence really demonstrate that God says sexual sin has an impact on the entire society, the entire culture. It's not just limited to what it does to that individual. It, it, what it does to the individual is awful, but it has a ripple effect. And another reason why we as churches have to be on guard against this kind of behavior from leadership or even, you know, when I say leadership, we can be talking about the pastor of a church. We can be talking about deacons. We can be talking to elders. We can be just be talking about people who are well-respected in the church. We need to call sexual sin out the same way that God calls it out because we want to stop the way it impacts because it, it doesn't just impact their victims. It will impact the church, and by consequence, it will impact the community, but it also impacts the church at large because I guarantee you there are there are watchdog groups out there, which I don't have a problem with, who catalog every act of sexual violence, sexual assault that happens within a church, and they use it as a way to say, aha, this is why you can't trust Christians. Look at what they're covering up. Look at what they're allowing to go on behind closed doors. We allow it to go on behind closed doors because for some reason, when we approach our own text and we approach the story, we try to put it behind its own kind of closed door. And we have really trained ourselves to think of sexual sin as something that you do downplay, you do minimize, and you ignore. The Bible does not do that. God does not do that. And so, anyway, 
I get a little wound up on this one. <laughs> so we can look forward to uh, the latter part of that verse, verse 13. Um, and it ends with Uriah sleeping with the servants and not going to his wife. So Uriah is still standing strong. He's not doing uh, what he, you know, what David wants him to do. So verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Now, David uses Uriah's loyalty against him. And the only way David's plan has any hope of succeeding is if Uriah could be trusted not to read the, uh, read the message. Or so we're told. Um, now, this calls into question a total, you know, it's going to seem like a weird abrupt change because it, it, it made me think of a question that seems almost unrelated. What were the literacy rates among the Hittites? And I got on Google, and it's amazing what you can find out with Google whenever you use it. And it turns out that this must be an absolutely fascinating topic for several people, not just me, because we have Theo uh, Van Vandenhout of Cambridge, who wrote an entire book about it. Uh, I did not read the book. It's $96 on Kindle and higher than that if you order the hard copy. But what I was able to glean from articles is that the Hittite literature is the oldest literature that we have today. It's what, the oldest known written um, stories and uh, all the other history things that are there. It is um, as far as in the Indo-European languages. So it's the oldest Indo-European language written um, pieces of history we've got. And um, the, then that leaves the question of whether or not the masses could read or whether it was something that was reserved just for the elite. Now, we can tell from Joab's story, from, from, well, from Joab's role in this story, that Joab can read. So the generals can read. And there's actually other um, scholars who believe that um, it was common for the generals of the armies to be able to read. Because, you know, they had to be able to receive communication uh, with their troops, with the kings, with, with other generals fighting in the same area. And Dr. Ari uh, Shaws of Tel Aviv University believes that by 587 BC, that 15 to 20% of Israel could read. And that would have encompassed most of the military leaders and they would have been fully literate. And that was not a new development at that time. He believes it's part of a continuing tradition. But by 587 BCE, this is when we've got enough artifacts amassed to basically be able to prove that 15 to 20 percent of Israel was uh, literate. And okay. Yeah. Now, and literacy is a core tenet of Judaism. And, you know, the foundational prayer within Judaism, the Shema, uh, says, you know, you're supposed to write the, the laws on the doorpost of your house and on the, the gates of your city. So the idea that people could read was um, was pretty central to the religion as a whole. And so it, because education becomes a sacred obligation. And the, the question is about how far back this goes really depends on where you date Deuteronomy. Do you believe it's part of the Babylonian exile um, or that it was at the time of Hezekiah? Did it go all the way back to Moses? These are questions I don't know if we'll ever have answered. But I did think it was interesting that I'm not the only one going, could Uriah have opened it? Could he have read it? Was you know, what was David planning? And how much did he rely on Uriah's um, loyalty versus um, his education or lack thereof? And it turns out that he probably had good reason to think that Uriah could read whatever he sent Joab. So he really was relying on the fact that Uriah was he's an obedient soldier he does what he's told so well that's yeah. that's what I would have guessed just from the text given Uriah's devotion and the fact that he didn't go home mm -hmm. because you know there was that idea or there is that idea that you know it's during time of times of war you're not supposed to have sex with your wives before going into battle so that's exactly I mean, that's what I would assume on that 
Yeah, but you know, you don't want to assume everything. You got to go dig around, see what you can find out, because that's when you find these really cool articles that say, "Hey, there's more going on." <laughs> no, I mean it, it is interesting, but I'm just saying, just you know, the, I think we could gather from the text that you know he's he's a devoted follower. Yes, definitely. Uh, I, I think that's 100% obvious within the text, which makes it so funny that the rabbis went out so far out of their way to blame him for all of this, and I, I think it really shows if. If the rabbis are being ridiculous and blaming Uriah, then we're being ridiculous if we try to blame Bathsheba. So, uh, verse 15. In the letter he wrote, and we're talking about David, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fight and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. So David's intent is, I want him dead. There's no ambiguity in this message. And you've got to wonder exactly what you, what Joab is thinking about this. And, but the, um, Oh, the, the, the writer seems to almost be including, you know, anticipating the, the theories that are going to be formulated because there is one theory that's out there that David was, was not in any way to blame for Uriah's death, that Joab actually was the one who decided that Uriah should die. And, you know, the, basically the idea of blaming David as a smear campaign against the king of Israel. Uh, another theory is that Uriah was an impetuous warrior who rushed ahead, and this is why he was killed, and this was kind of known to be in keeping with his character. But the writer Samuel, Samuel doesn't want you to make that mistake. David is the one who decrees that Uriah has to die, and he's the one who right. sets the events in motion. Now, as far as we know, up to this point, Joab has no idea why David wants Uriah to die. We don't know. Any reason why Joab would know about the events going on in the the palace back in Jerusalem? All he knows is that David has issued an order, and as David's loyal general, he follows the order. However, Joab's message back to David seems to hint that Joab thought there was something kind of hinky about the orders. Verse uh, sixteen uh, says, "And Joab was besie- uh, was besieging the city." He assigned Uriah to the place where he knew the knew there were valiant men. Now the city's being besieged. When when they besiege a city, the residents are behind the walls. The warriors are behind the walls. Joab's army is waiting them out. You know, there's some volleys back and forth, there's some little skirmishes, but it's not active combat. This is not like, you know, meeting on a battlefield. But Joab sends Uriah to a place where there's valiant men. So these are guys who have been, you know, who knows how long they've been sitting there waiting for something to happen. Uh, Warriors who are bored, warriors with pent-up energy and a lot of anxiety. And so he's even sending Uriah to that spot means that, you know, there's the temptation for these guys to come out from behind the walls and actually fight. But we're going to learn later that that's not what happens, even though that might be the image that we have in our mind. What happens is he gets shot by archers. So now the verse 17 says the men in the city came out and fought with Joab. So I know I just said that they, that didn't happen, but evidently I forgot my own notes. So they did come out, they fought, but whether the question is, did they come out from behind the walls or did they come out to the tops of the walls? And so some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So not only did Uriah die, now we have multiple men. And who was Uriah with? He wasn't, he was probably with other mighty men. He probably wasn't just with uh, regular foot soldiers. And Joab, you know, he, he showed that he knew he could predict what these warrior men would do. And he knew that the valiant men would not let, you know, the passing by of the enemy other walls go unchallenged. And for the first of three times, we are told that David's servants are killed, that, that David's, the king's servants are killed. And we're reminded right back when we go to Hanun, you know, David's servants were humiliated, but this is even worse because it's not only are they you know dying instead of being humiliated, it's caused by their king, not the king of the opposing, char- uh, opposing kingdom. You know, David's sin is costing life uh, and multiple lives. Right. So um, the problem is the deaths don't stop here. It, it just from here on out, I mean, it's just one death after another. 
So verse 18, we're told that Joab sends a messenger back to David. Uh, the content of the messages, it, it proves that while Joab does, doesn't have details about why David wanted Uriah to die, he certainly knows something's off. And I, I mentioned that before, but we're going to, let's go into the message. Verse 19, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king anger, anger, king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? And this reveals the important detail of the archers. Um, and there, there's a moment here where, where Joab is anticipating the, the fact that as a good general, he should have not let his men get so close. They would be endangered by the archers. And so Joab's saying, hey, you don't get to question my leadership skills in this. Uh, is basically what he's saying. Yes, David's going to wonder why this happened. David's going to question, why would I, as a good leader, allow the guys to be endangered? But Joab says, I'm, I'm going to head it off at the pass. And so he says in verse 21, who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he did die at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So he's anticipated David being mad. He anticipates David blaming him for poor leadership skills. And the he also anticipates how David is going to justify questioning this. He knows that David is going to refer back to the history of Israel, particularly events in Judges. And you know, as far as we know, David has no clue that, I mean, sorry, Joab has no clue that David was walking along the walls of the roof of his, of his own palace. He has no idea that there was a woman involved at any way, shape, or form. There, there's, there's another point in the story where just like Uriah, whenever he said, hey, I'm going to do the right thing, serves as an indictment against David. Now, Joab sends back another message that is also an indictment um, against David. And there might be just the slightest little hint of compassion on display from Joab here in that he knows that any messenger who brings David bad news has a tendency to end up dead. And so he might be actually providing the messenger with an out, a way to stay alive. And right. I, I don't I don't know, but <laughs> is it, is it I mean, it almost kind of seems like there's an implication of connecting this back to, you know, the death of one man by a woman mm -hmm. that he's he's telling the messenger, you know, maybe bring this up if David gets angry about it, that, you know, the, uh, a death because uh, a death by a by a woman from someone on a wall might be involved here you know well that's the thing we don't know we don't know if joab was being very pointed by going back to this example or if he just you know hey it works here so i'm going to use what's available to me we've got that question but it's funny that he puts the words in david's mouth he says if david says this if david references this event then this is how you respond and mm. I, I had not, you know, I hadn't slowed down in my reading enough to realize that even though Joab's, Joab's saying it, he, he's saying this is what the king could say. And now, for those who don't know what he's referencing, he's referencing back to Judges 9, 50 through 56. That's the story of Abimelech, the son of, uh, here it's called Jerubasheth, but we know him better as Gideon. And yeah. Gideon's name was changed when he tore down his father's uh, idols, and that's when he became Jerubbaal. But the writer Samuel never includes the name Baal in any of the proper names in his book. We saw that already with Mephibosheth. And after, um, you know, after G Gideon had conquered the the Midianites, uh, the people had asked him to be king. He had, you know, technically declined, but for all functional purposes, was king. And then Abimelech, who was his son, and I, we covered a lot of this more in detail in a, a previous episode, uh, Abimelech, his son, 
uh, decides that he is definitely going to be king of Israel. And he kills all of his brothers, except for the one who escapes, which is, which is Jotham. And we know that Abimelech is clearly an illegitimate king. And his story was connected to Saul's in several ways. Now, when Abimelech died, it was when he was attacking the um, city of Thebes, and a woman threw a millstone from a tower, and the, the millstone wounded him, and he tells his armor bearer, I want you to kill me so it's not said that a woman kills me. Now, if you remember the death of Saul, you know, Saul tells his armor bearer, you know, kill me so it's not said that the Philistines killed me. And so that's where we get the connection back to Saul. But now we're beginning to see how David's becoming folded up in this legacy of illegitimate kings. And we have to wonder, is there any way David can pull out of this? And the, again, the only hope we have is back in 2 Samuel 7, where God has established a covenant with David. And how much of God keeping that covenant is dependent on David upholding his part? And how much of it is God being true to the character of who he is? And you know, David knows whether whether Joab knows it or not. David knows he got too close to the wall. David knows that these deaths are the result of not just a woman or what a woman did, but the fact that he allowed a woman to to tempt him from doing what he knew was right. And you know, and David's become a murderer. He's murdering his brothers in arms, if you will, and in ver that way, very much reminiscent of Abimelech, and. There's this insinuation in, in Joab's words that David might not be worthy of king. And the reason for that is because he's sharing just a, too, a few too many qualities with Abimelech and with Saul. So hmm. verse 22, the messenger goes to David. He, he tells David, the men in the city came out to fight in the field. We drove them back to the gate and the archer shot David's servants from the wall and the king's servants were dead. And Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Um, David said to the messenger, and it's very interesting, David's response, because it's not the angry response that Joab says. And we don't even know if actually Joab's message about the woman on the wall gets back to David. The, the messenger doesn't have to use, uh, uh, you know, David doesn't say these things like Joab predicted he will. Uh, David actually bypasses and he says, Thus you shall say to Joab, do not let the matter displease you, for the sword devours. Now one, now another, strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. Now the, the, the sword had nothing to do with the situation. Archers killed Uriah and the other men. Um, now David, and David accepts the losses as inevitable, and they're acceptable as long as Uriah is dead. As long as this goal has been achieved, he's okay. And David's mercenary side is really shining through because he is extending Joab this comfort and encouraging him because Joab managed to kill Uriah. So it's okay. The other men died. David doesn't care. And, and this should be just as disturbing as the rest of the story to us. Why isn't he upset that not only is Uriah dead, several other of his fighting men are, are dead? Well, yeah, and I mean, to me, this kind of sounds, it sounds to me like David had a prepared speech and all he heard of the message was that Uriah was dead. Mm -hmm. Which is troubling in and of itself. I mean, a, a king needs to be aware of what's going on. He needs to be able to listen. And, but, you know, at this point, David's not listening to anyone. He's evidently not even talking to God anymore. Where's Nathan at that point in time? Uh, you know, so we've got all this stuff happening that's showing us David. David's not being David in this moment. And yeah. So, so, so should we should we also assume that if someone answers you only in prepared statements, that maybe they're not where they're supposed to be? Um, don't even get me started on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Yeah, yeah, but I it, this whole story. I don't see how anyone can read it. I mean, just read it, even without the background. You could read it and see any way of trying to, to vindicate David here. And, and then look at verse 26. The, the language the writer uses here is so pointed. When the wife of Uriah heard Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Wife of Uriah, Uriah, her husband. 
her husband. This is all language of attachment. It is showing you that she cared for him. She grieves over him. Matter of fact, when the writer of Matthew goes back and he talks about the genealogy of, of Jesus, we're told this is the wife of Uriah. We, we mm-hmm. aren't mm-hmm. even told Bathsheba. That, that's, not, that's not included, not out of disrespect for her, but we are never allowed to forget this is how she enters the story. And the, the Bible does not gloss over it, even in the, the genealogy of Jesus, by saying David's wife or the queen of Israel. No, we're remembering this moment, this wrong committed against her as we read through Jesus' narrative. And, and the fact that she's included, and it's not an inclusion that erases her history. It's not an inclusion that downplays it. It shows us how we should be responding. And there's, mm-hmm. there's such a huge example set for us, but we ignore it because we don't talk about sexual sin. We particularly do not talk about sexual violence and assault by good Christian men, God-fearing men. We, we talk about it as if it's the woman's fault. And again, the Bible never lays any blame on her. So it, and I found it very interesting that most of the commentators don't even mention the fact that she is lamenting, she's grieving over her husband. And so, you know, why would she grieve over a man she was planning to get rid of so that she could have David? There, right. This is a real uh, time of just heart-wrenching anguish. It's the same word that we find uh, when Jacob grieves over Rachel. It's, it's pretty pointed. Um, you know, I think it's also pointed to that, and I will harp on that a bit, that three times you have that husband-wife language within that real small space of, you know, that, those few words. And so I, I think one of the, the big things about the story that as I went through and I studied it, because I've kind of shied away from a lot of the feminist literature over it, because I didn't want to be... Um, didn't want to be impacted too much. And I, but, you know, I already had all these years of being told how the story should read. What I, what I saw in the text is I, I see a woman who is taken by a violent man in the middle of doing what God told her to do, in the middle of doing what is right and good. I see a woman who's described as beautiful rather than described as good. That's a translator choice right there. Neither one's wrong, but one has. A, a totally different connotation than the other in our minds. A woman who doesn't make threats, a woman who is not uh, trying to manipulate through the fact that she's pregnant. She simply shares the fact, this is the truth, the reality of where I am. And she's a woman who grieves over her husband. This is not the wanton seductress that we've been told that she has to be. And I think that is significant. And so. The idea that we can in some way vilify her is more, it tells more about who we are as readers and who we are as people than what God has said about her. And the fact that God, even when he remembers her in that genealogy, will not allow us to dodge the facts of her situation. Mm-hmm. I, it just, it's huge. And I, I just don't understand how in the world we've justified making her into this image of seduction when she's so clearly not. And, um, yeah. 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 And, and, and you mentioned the genealogy and that's one of the things, I mean, if you, if you look at the stories of the genealogies, this it's it's a truncated version of this whole of the whole old testament and how people screw it up and screw it up and screw it up and that's why we need a redeemer mm-hmm. that's why we need jesus so that's yeah yeah and <laughs> we're gonna i mean I, I actually i mean we're kind of doing this anyway but mm-hmm. i think it would be fun to do uh after we wrap up here to kind of go back in kind of a retrospective i know we talked about possibly doing the gospels in the future uh, whenever we finally get through some of <laughs> what we're working on. Um, but I do think if we ever do that, it would be very interesting to go back, because this is how we should read the Gospels, 
especially the genealogy of Jesus, genealogies of Jesus, we should go through them. And every time there's someone mentioned, we should go back and look at their story and go, hmm, mm-hmm. this is terrible. Then the next person, oh, oh right. this was a terrible situation. <laughs> also terrible. You know? Yeah, and, well, and that's the, the interesting thing is when we talk about Jesus' genealogy, Heiser has a great treatment of this in Reversing Hermon. Um, so you, there's four women mentioned there. And we have Tamar, who is um, Onan's wife. And then we have um, Ruth and Boaz, who, you know, Ruth, the Moabitess, who winds up basically seducing uh, Boaz. We don't tell that story that way. We have Bathsheba and we have Rahab and all women who are involved in something sexually scandalous, whether they were the perpetrators or they were the victims. And the women on both sides of that equation are redeemed. It's not just the victims that are redeemed, which we, oh, victims, yeah, we need to be redeemed, not because of the fact that we've committed the sin, but because of the the hurt and the wounding, and we need to have healing and restoration. Women who who have been the perpetrators, they can be redeemed. And I think that's really interesting that in Christian circles, and this is for men as well as women, uh, that a lot of times sexual sin is seen as the unforgivable sin. It's the one sin that that has some kind of special place in God's you know uh, rule book that you know, not going to deal with that one when that's so not the case and obviously we see that with David and I, that really is the point of the story uh, when we talk about it in the salvation history it, it, we're talking about the fact that even though David did something so awful there is a chance for repentance and there is a chance for redemption. The consequences of David's acts are not going to be removed. They're they're gonna it's gonna happen. And David can't stop it. And we're gonna see how he attempts to stop it. But David is not cast out of the family. And so we're gonna talk about why, you know, why God could even do that. And and I think um because I do want to include this in the episode so people don't miss it. When we start grading sins on a scale, it's so easy to feel smug and superior to everyone else and to go, oh, well, you know, at least I didn't do that. And, you know, thank God there's some sins that, you know, aren't real common or that, you know, we as believers tend to avoid because those are good things to do. But here's the thing. If God can forgive a sin as big as what David has committed here then we should rejoice in the fact that we know our sins are covered. And, and so I think that's, that's the big takeaway is, you know, if God can forgive huge, horrible sins that we want to grade on that scale, then he can also forgive the smaller stuff. And instead of us feeling superior to David, we should be in awe and grateful that we can rest with this confidence that God will forgive and redeem us. So. Um, mm-hmm. We've got, um, we've got a little bit more to go in the story. And of course, Bestiva is going to show up some more later on. Um, she actually turns her story around in some really uh, interesting ways. And Yeah, so- I, I do want to comment. I, I, I mean, not comment. I do want to hear that and discuss that quite a bit. Because it gets very interesting later on in the story. And she becomes a major player in a lot of things. Oh, yeah. She's called a Gibora, she's, you know, which is the counterpart of the Gibberim. She, she's a mighty woman. And so you, you right. have to you have to wonder what does it take to become a mighty woman? And, you know, uh, which I think is really encouraging for women who who have gone through uh, sexual violence to know that the, this woman from the Bible, God elevates her to this position. And so that mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that's hope that we could be considered yeah. a Gaborah. So, um, you know, I I think we probably should hit the pause button there because I could keep talking. Um, but, uh, again, I think this is a good episode to remind women if you're on Facebook and you want to talk about some of the stuff, you want to talk about personal experience, uh, you know, ask questions about very specific, uh, issues on this, these kind of matters, find me, we'll get you in scandalous and get you in there with some other trustworthy, um, supportive women and, uh, provide a place that, you know, we can talk through it. So, yeah, well, that being said, um, yeah, Raven Creek SC on all the social media is where you can find that, uh, where you can get a hold of us uh, if you do want to talk to Emily about that. Um, her profile, her personal profile is linked there. Um, maybe send her a 
a private message if you're in a situation that needs more sensitivity. Um, in the meantime, if you want to be a contributor to the conversation, uh, hit us up on that same social media address, Raven Creek SC or RavenCreekSC.com. It's the website where you can find uh, show notes um, and other podcasts. So in the meantime, uh, I guess we'll see you on the internet. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. Oddities Podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.